Please turn your hearts to heaven with me. Father in the heavens, I approach you with my brothers and sisters here as disciples of Yahshua the Messiah. I ask, Father, that you extend to us every blessing and uh, every protection afforded to us in Yahshua. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the witness we speak. We pray, Father, that you grant only good come about as a result of this presentation and no evil. I ask also that you have Yahshua go with me because we can't do anything without him. Please, Father, now accept our sacrifices of praise and worship. And please, Father, now prosper these words, this material for good uh, in every way possible. Amen and hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, I'm Brother Michael Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. Every blessing of Yahshua be yours in abundance. The title of my remarks today is The Good News and Its Great Messages. I'm going to tap the brake and just go off on a tangent for a bit. I wanted to keep on singing, my lands. The the music was so uplifting today and so much of the material in the songs uh, match up with uh, the content here. Well, I'm thinking about it. I want to thank the team, ministerial team here for all they're doing, the music team. The people who are taking care of the facilities and the ministry in general. I see they're trying to get a screen up there on the wall behind, uh, behind the, the sound booth. And you have this lovely menorah on the wall behind me. I see the sacrifices and the efforts you guys are putting forward. I really appreciate it. One of the, uh, one of the great indicators of Yah's grace to us is that we pulled through this terrible winter. We still managed to pull through even when... Some of us traveled because, well, it was convenient to travel, but many of us traveled because we had to. Many of us were sick, and we still managed to pull through. It's really amazing, and I'm so delighted in that. Well, here's what happened. I don't normally talk about this kind of stuff, but I actually um, have another sermon I want to give. I'll tell you a little bit about it. I'd like you to think this material today is a preparation for that. Many of you know I've been working on packaging together a a sermon on sins that men are inclined to and women are inclined to. And the objective was to meet them head on and to overcome those sins as victory is within reach for all of us. Uh, But um, as I got to working on finally blasting everything into into the PowerPoints, I thought, my lands, some of this stuff could be high voltage, Now, if I'm going to give a sermon on the three greatest weaknesses of men and the three greatest weaknesses of women, I can only give that sermon while I'm single. Because once I'm married, my wife might, you know, beat me over the head, like as though I'm going to give the impression I was talking about her for one half of the message, right? There's some things I can get away with while I'm single. So I'll tell you what, I do want to give that message. If y'all gives me the grace to do it, I'll talk with, more with the elders about coordinating that, and maybe we'll have some of the children taken to a different place. But I didn't want to broadside you with some high-voltage stuff without um, giving you a chance to think about what the audience should be. Even, even though you guys know I can be very discreet, I'll be very careful with my choice of words, I still would like to um, approach that carefully. So someday, y'all willing, we will talk about 
the three greatest weaknesses of men and women. I don't know if I want to call them sins anymore because there are times when your inborn weaknesses become an occasion for sin, but that weakness itself is not a sin. And uh, sorting that out uh, is proved uh, worthy of its time. Today we're going to cover the, great, the good news and its great messages. We're going to talk about the history of salvation, Yah's plan, the promise, the people that were summoned, a summoned people, that is us, a called people, the central figure of Yah's plan of salvation. You shouldn't have to guess who that is, okay? In the fulfillment today, your sanctification. Now, we first have to cover some ground. I, I know that the creationist guy, Ken Ham, he says, one of the reasons people don't believe the good news is because they don't believe the bad news. The bad news is you're going to die. And the enemy has a lot invested in the first lie, which is you're not going to die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Now the Hebrew reads, y'all are studying Hebrew now, look it up. It says, you will not die, die. In, in other words, you will not really die. And there's other translations too that convey the sense that, oh, you're, you're not going to really die. And so before I even get into talking about the good news, I've got to talk about the bad news. Refuting the pop culture myth of the immortal soul. Now, we put up with all this. I'm telling you, the devil's got an awful lot invested in this lie. Near-death experiences. Well, you know, it's funny. If you take these near-death experiences and you line them all up, they don't match. They're all different. Now, if I want to publish a book on near-death experiences and I want to really get you in on this, I'll cluster up the near-death experiences that look similar. But when you take a broader view... They are all experiences that are interpretations of what their culture tells them to expect. And some of them are ridiculous and comical. In fact, uh, if you dip into near-death experiences of Hindus, you get these ridiculous near-death experiences where they're, uh, they're with multiple gods and <laughs> funny things are going on in the throne room of their heaven, their nirvana. Some of it is so ridiculous <laughs> and I wouldn't urge it upon you, but if you take the time to line up all these stories, no, nah, no, nah, there's what they're experiencing is a synchronization of their cultural expectation. Surely this can't be from heaven. Then there's this business of seances. These are just demons pretending to be dead people you know. One of the reasons I called for the blessing I did at the outset in my prayer because on occasion I make mention of this stuff. When I was a youth, I was into the occult. The reason I got out is because I wanted to know who the boss was. I wanted to know who the boss is. That whole realm is so confusing. I just want to know who the boss is. Who, who's in charge? Maybe it's my Chicago background. Because in Chicago, there's only one question that matters. Who's the man to see? If I want something, who's the man to see? I want to know who the boss is. Who's in charge of this universe? That's all I want to know. I want to go direct to him. I don't want to talk to the dead. Demons pretend to be dead people you know. In fact, in the realm of, um, not spiritism, but in the world of psychic research, those who try to get into it scientifically, they'll tell you, don't talk to the dead. Don't do it. It's one of the most very dangerous things you can get into. Uh, what happens is these forces get into the mind, and they don't want to let go. And uh, 
The Torah forbids talking to the dead. By the way, there's a, I, I'm glad I forgot the name, but there's a major influential uh, a church in Chicago. They were one of the main churches at the roots of the gospel music movement many generations ago. But they have a systematic theology of talking to the dead. That's part of their religion. And they don't know that this is pure evil. King Shaul visited the witch at Endor because he wanted some inside information on his future. And he wanted to talk to, to the prophet Samuel. You find a brethren of goodwill will argue about what really happened there. They say, well, they can't be Samuel because the dead know nothing. And they have no stake in the present land. You'll see this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Then you have others who say, well, the Bible says that was Samuel coming up out of the ground there. And so you have people debate this. To me, the real, the real lesson is that is a realm of high-handed confusion. Total confusion in that world. You don't want to go there. You'd rather have the pure word. And people who were into this stuff, they got the problems. Now, another tough topic is uh, out-of-body experiences. Now, it turns out it's a very simple explanation. The Bible has uh, visions people experience where their consciousness is going to a different place than their body. For example, Isaiah, he was in the throne room of heaven. Well, his consciousness was there, but the Bible says no man has ascended into heaven. So he got a glimpse of what was up there, but he himself was down on the earth. Paul talks about a man who had a vision. And he said, I don't know if it was in his body or out of it. I couldn't tell. Um, you have John in that vision, set of visions in the book of Revelation. When Yahweh causes something like that to happen, where your mind is taken to a different place, uh, well, that's him doing it. But there are situations people can be into where they're momentarily, they feel like they're in a different place in their own body. And it's simply a natural phenomena. It's often associated with a trauma, a fall, a blow to the head, um, a surgery, where they're heavily drugged. Here's where the danger is. Don't ever seek to go there. Now, remember, I'm speaking from experience, stuff I've, not, not on this. I never had out-of-body experience, thank heavens. But I found that when I tried to do that, when I was in the occult, man, I was slammed with all kinds of evil temptations. If something like this happens naturally, you just, well, you can jot it down if you want, but you don't go seeking this. It's simply a malfunction. Often those who have had that experience will talk about a cord coming out of the back of their, their shoulders. In Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7, it talks about the silver cord being broken. Let's put it this way. When somebody has an out-of-body experience, it's not, it's not your proof that you have an immortal soul. Because if they came back from this experience, that means they didn't die. What happens when you die is your spirit goes right back to Yahweh, and he holds that in reserve. If you happen to be in Yahshua when that happens, he'll bring you back someday. Thank heaven, for me, thank heavens I have all this technical knowledge in this age. I think in terms of hard drives, thumb drives, memory storage, and someday he'll download all that back into a resurrected body and I'll be up and running again. So... The idea of a hard drive and a thumb drive and a storage tapes and that, it kind of makes sense for bringing me back. But the dead know nothing. 
and any of these little sideshow experiences we have while we're alive, they are not going to overrule the fact that you are going to die. In fact, the wicked will be destroyed. If I had time, I could read to you about mm, about a hundred scriptures telling you that the wicked will be destroyed. But the devil would have you think, oh, you're going to have an afterlife. Yeah, you'll be alive. Yeah, some of these crazy people, they think they're going to go to a hell and they're going to have parties down there. There's some people who really think this. After my mother died, uh, a couple of weeks after my mom passed away, I just knew she was in the backyard. I just knew it. And of course, it was a lie. My mom wasn't in the backyard. But I can imagine somebody who doesn't know any better who will think, that's proof my mama's still alive. Just because I felt something like that. There's a lot of reasons to fall for this lie, and I don't want you to fall for the lie. You're not going to believe the good news until you accept the bad news. And the devil has a lot invested in terms of misrepresenting, misinterpreting, distorting, and just flat out lying to you. When, uh, one more thing, when dead people pretend, when people make contact, quote, with the dead, at first these demons pretend to be the dead person, and then the mask comes off. You find out, no, it's not Uncle Charlie. At first you think it's Uncle Charlie. Well, only Uncle Charlie would know the combination to the safe. <laughs> no, no. These demons have knowledge too. Something else, this again, this is like preparatory, maybe some of it's side material. I want you to think about something. King David was preceded by King Shaul, who went to the witch at Endor. Josephus records that Solomon, this is David's son, Josephus records that Solomon got into a hobby of casting out demons. This is a hobby of his. You have to read Josephus to find this out. The only time in the Bible, though, we really find the saints confronting demons is in the New Covenant era, in the Bible. You find out about Solomon doing this through Josephus. But think about it. Solomon spent a lot of time hanging around with these pagan wives. And when you see Yahshua make the scene, Israel's infested with demons because of Roman occupation and sin. So you have King David like stuck in between Shaul going to the witch and his own son going after foreign wives. Um, the point I'm making is that that icky stuff, that spiritism stuff, it gives you false hope, a false sense of knowledge. There's a strong correlation between that and paganism, between that and anything that's not Yahweh. The way I look at the game, it's either Yahweh or it's not. Either he's in it or he's not. It's a real hard choice because there's a middle position we, our flesh wants to take. Absolute purity will be the ultimate call. Absolute communion with Yahweh is the answer. And this halfway stuff leaves doors open for outside influence. Here's a prophecy resulting from the fall. And Yahweh Elohim said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, 
and above every beast of the field upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Verse 15 of Genesis 3, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, the seed will bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It mentions her seed. It means a virgin birth. A woman will have a baby. It'll be her seed. There'll be no natural father. Why was it necessary to have no human father for this coming seed, this deliverer, to deliver us from sin and death? The explanation for the virgin birth is in Numbers 14 18. Yahweh is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Now think about it. Oh, I'm going to jump ahead here. Yahshua comes into the world with a natural human daddy. He's already inheriting the iniquity of three or four generations before him. He cannot have the baggage of previous generations visited upon him. He has to come in with a clean slate. You would never guess that Numbers 14, 18 is also a prophecy of the virgin birth. Yahshua has to come in with a clean slate. No human daddy. It's the seed of a woman. Here's another prophetic element. Thou shalt bruise his heel, it says there in Genesis 3. We're still not sure what a Roman execution looks like. It's a crying shame we got all these Hollywood things with these beautiful four-square crosses. It looks like they just used whatever lumber was handy and they recycled it. How do they even nail the feet? Catholic uh, imagery has his two feet, one over the other, and one single nail going through. Then they found this guy. This came up, this hit the news around 1969. They uh, found a bone box in Oshawary. Some poor guy's heel was in there, and it had a nail driven through his heel, heel bone. And the reason it got, evidently it got stuck in the wood because there was a knot in the wood. They could never pull it out. So they buried him with that part of his foot in there with that nail going through. Roman execution involved nailing criminals to upright stakes or pillars. There might have been supports for their arms, but it wasn't anything. It looks like there was a wide variety of things they used. Um, But uh, this thing with the feet, I hope you can follow this. They would drive the nail sideways through the feet. And what we're not sure of is whether one foot was on you know, this side of the post and the other foot was on the alternate side. And so this poor guy would have to try to suspend himself off of a, off his foot, like off his feet, trying to support himself on nails. Okay. The other possibility is that they were suspended sideways and it was one giant nail going through two feet. But it looks like one nail per foot on the sides of the posts, at least for this poor guy, whose bone was discovered. The bone box has the name Yohanan Yohanan on it. But there it is. The the serpent shall bruise his heel. This was prophesied thousands of years before Roman execution methods. There was a covenant with Abraham that had a promise in it. 
And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Yahweh takes an international view. All nations will be blessed through Abraham's seed. The book of um, Galatians makes clear that it's one seed in particular that Yahweh is talking about. The promise to Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, has this promise inside. And there are tons of messianic prophecies in the Bible. Those of you who are in teaching ministry, who have a tight schedule of putting sermons together, you guys know very well that messianic prophecies are a bottomless well of sermon material. You can put a sermon together in minutes. Just go on the internet and look up messianic prophecies. <laughs> They're all over the place. We are blessed in these great, uh, this great sacred deposit of scriptures. We have uh, a flood of prophets, a flood of prophecies, creating this grand scheme consistent across hundreds of years, thousands of years. The Jews grew up knowing about these prophecies, foretelling Yahshua's coming. If they were adequately trained by the Levites, they knew about this stuff. What was their general expectation? Shortly before Yahshua arrived, the Roman government said that uh, the Jews could no longer do capital punishment without Roman approval. And a lot of Jews interpreted that as having lost the scepter. History records that Jews had cried out when Rome decided that they were going to only allow capital punishment with the approval of the local Roman magistrate. A lot of Jews prayed and cried, woe is us, the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah has not come. This occurred, uh, I'd say, within a generation of Yahshua's arrival. So there was good reason to expect this Messiah. More or less, the, the Jews had religious freedom, but they were still under the thumb of Rome. We're going to review the expectation of the Jews at the time in history where we see the arrival of John the Baptist and his kinsman, Yahshua of Nazareth. If you'd like to get a snapshot of the good news as understood by Jews at that time, and you want to see it expressed prophetically, you're going to be reading with me now people who are inspired by the Holy Spirit declaring what their expectation is. It's all there in Luke chapter 1. It's amazing how... I happen to I have a special place in my heart for the book of Luke because to me it reads like an Old Testament book. And if you open it up and you get your hands on a good translation, it sounds just like the Old Testament, like we're picking up where we left off. Like some people call uh, John the last of the Old Testament prophets. So as these people, these players in Luke chapter 1, are advised of these coming boys, these two Hebrew boys, John and Yahshua, Pay attention to the words. There's a lot of scripture coming. I'm going to give you giant balls of scripture. Then I'm going to take chunks out and underscore them. Then I'm going to distill them into a list. And then we're going to extract six essential messages. We start with Gabriel visiting Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. They've been waiting a long time to have a baby. And Gabriel's news goes far beyond the mere announcement of a pregnancy. So try to relax, try to follow a lot of scripture ahead, but you know, reading scripture is not a bad thing. 
Go to Luke chapter 1, verse 13 to 17. The angel comes to uh, Zechariah. Zechariah is scared. The angel says to him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of Yahweh, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's special, to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Yahshua was not filled with the Holy Spirit until his baptism. That's how special this guy is. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to Yahweh their Elohim. This is why Yahshua said, among men born of women, there's none greater than John. He turned people to Elohim. He got sinners to stop. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Eliah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, underscore, to make ready a people prepared for Yahweh. So Yahshua didn't have to show up at an empty auditorium. John got people thinking. John got people ready. John got people forgiven of sin. Continuing to Luke chapter 1, jumping to verse 26 to 33. The same angel Gabriel, he's pretty busy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from Elohim unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, underscore virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Miriam. And the angel came into her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored, Yahweh is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Miriam, for thou hast found favor with Elohim. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Yahshua. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And Yahweh Elohim shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And underscore, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Looks like there's no turning back once this guy gets his kingdom set up. Jumping to verse 39. This is a long one now, going to verse 56. And Miriam arose in those days and went into the hill country, with haste into a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zechariah and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Miriam, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So now what Elizabeth is going to say is prophecy too. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and she spoke out with a loud voice. This is what happens when someone's visited by a spirit of prophecy. They can't hold it in. It's hard anyway. She said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence this to me, that underscore, the mother of my master. Wait a minute. The mother of my master should come to me. She recognizes that what's inside of Miriam is the boss. Adonai, the boss. The mother of my master should come to me. For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Underscore, and blessed is she that believed. Remember, Abraham was counted righteous because he believed what he was told. Blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from Yahweh. So we have now a, a, uh, 
a rhetorical connection between her and Abraham's promise. Seed, well, they seed, one in particular, and Abraham believed all these things. And Miriam said, I underscore, my soul doth magnify Yahweh. When you look at the Greek text, you can tell the holy name belongs there. This sounds like something right out of Psalms. And my spirit hath rejoiced in Elohim, my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaid, for behold, from henceforth, underscore, all generations shall call me blessed. Um, that would be all nations. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, underscore, holy is his name. Sounds like an Old Testament <laughs> sound to me. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud of the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled with hungry, pardon, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He hath given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Emphasis, and he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Miriam abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. I'm going to go back there and uh, forensically dig some things out. <coughs> Just a little more from this long chapter of Luke 1. When John was born, let me back up, Zechariah didn't believe. <laughs> so he was struck with dumbness. I found it interesting we sang uh, today about uh, Sing O Ye Dumb. That came up in the, in the A lot of the things in the songs today spoke to this message, even though I did a switcheroo. I... Uh, Zechariah's tongue was loosed, and uh, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So there's more prophecy coming. Blessed be Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Underscore, and he, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. This has been a long time in the making that we should underscore, be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, emphasis in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, talking to John, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of Yahweh to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our Elohim, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. I would love to someday do a study on what the word day spring means in there. It's a lovely poetic way to describe Yahshua, the day spring from on high. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Yahweh's intentions for this coming Messiah, and also John, are spelled out with extreme clarity in these pre-birth prophecies for John and Yahshua. The whole thing is laid out there for you. So I'm going to underscore some of the key messages by going back and plucking them out. Key message one, the promise within the covenant with the patriarchs. 
Luke 155, it says, As he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. He's already revealed this, chunks of it, long ago. Luke 1, 71 to 73, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. This promise, this deliverer, this seed, had been promised for a long time. To remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. There were many promises to Abraham, but the one about his seed is the big one. That in blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Emphasis, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Through this one guy, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Salvation is key message number two, something needed since the world began. This is an old problem. Blessed be Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Underscore, which have been since the world began. There are prophets, messengers we don't even know about who've been declaring the coming of this Messiah. We know plenty in the Bible, but there's plenty of them we don't know about who talked this up. This brings to mind the prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, emphasis, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Let's just step back a few paces. All men everywhere have built within, all men and women, okay, I'm using the rhetorical men, it's everybody. They have a pocket in their heart that's shaped and built and uh, provisioned just to be a parking place for Yahweh. It's already there. And all men everywhere know that they've done naughty things and they need to be forgiven of their sins. Everywhere you go, people already know about this. They already know that they're supreme being. Don't let the media fool you. The natural state of men, the overwhelming majority of people around the world, they have an overwhelming desire to worship. The animal kingdom will come and go. They go on their merry way, just doing what they're programmed to do. But only the human race knows they need an Elohim, they need to harbor him inside, and they need forgiveness of sins. This awareness is already there, pre-programmed, ready to, to manage and to develop. When I was young adult... I'm going to have to speak to people who are approximately my age. (coughs) There was a picture of the Hindu deity Krishna that was going around a lot. You don't see it anymore. But it was the Hindu deity Krishna stepping on the head of a serpent. Does anybody remember seeing that? Remember Elder Jacob Meyerman made mention of this? Turns out, I would never put it on the screen here, but there's a lot of Hindu art that has... um, uh, 
this deity stepping on the head of a serpent or multiple serpents. And um, we will find traces of the messianic promise in all cultures. And getting them on board could actually be easier than perhaps the Jews because whereas the, our Jewish friends are they're looking for a restoration of the kingdom primarily, men everywhere want a savior. They know there's something between them and heaven that's got to be resolved. Dealing with sin is the key. That's message number three from Luke chapter one. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of Yahweh to prepare his ways, underscore to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our Elohim, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Note also Matthew one twenty one: He shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Yahshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Dealing with sin is the key. Key message number four, fear and humility. It's from Luke 1, verse 50 to 52. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath shown strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. Emphasis, exalted them of low degree. (coughs) They mention fear and humility. Key message number five, holiness and righteousness. That he would grant to us that we being delivered out of the land of our enemies. Pardon. Luke one seventy four to 75. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Emphasis in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Key message number six, the kingdom. I'm going to jump to the bottom of the page. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's Luke 1.32. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. I mean, this is it. This is the, um, uh, this is the last great day. This is like the, the one day that represents eternity. Six big messages I've extracted from Luke chapter 1 having to do with the messianic expectation. The ancient promise within the covenant. The ancient promise was given in the Garden of Eden. But the fulfillment is buried in the agreement Yahweh makes with Abraham. It includes deliverance from our enemies. Do you guys remember what the word Satan means? It means enemy. It's a title. It's not a name. Hashatan, the enemy. In Aramaic, Aramaic, they put an A at the end where the Hebrew would put Ha in the beginning. So when you see Satana in Aramaic, that means the enemy. Number three, remission of sin. Number four, fear and humility. Number five, holiness and righteousness. Six, establishment of the kingdom. I'm going to highlight two of these for you. Number four and five. Now number three is remission of sin. Number six in my list is establishment of the kingdom. Number four and five are the bridge between remission of sin and establishment of the kingdom. Fear and humility, holiness and righteousness. It's taken me a while to get there, but that's really what I want to talk about. Fear and humility, holiness and righteousness. You can get your sins forgiven. 
But Yahshua also says, sorry, I'm going too fast. Yahshua also says, be sure to you don't sin no more. You don't want anything bad to happen to you. It would thrill me to know that my brothers and sisters, even you young people, yeah, even you young people, it would thrill me to, yeah, look at this. It would thrill me to know even the young people would count sin as your mortal enemy. Sin is the barrier between you and getting into that kingdom. I know it's fun to hoot and holler if your favorite ball team beat their opponents. I know what that's like. I know what what it's like to win at these board games we, we enjoy over there. But eternal pleasure, eternal joy, the kingdom, doing wholesome things with people you care about. Volleyball, board games, baseball, hikes in the forest, Katy Trail, Appalachian Trail, watching the whales off the Pacific coast. All this glorious stuff you always give, this cool kingdom that we're going to inherit. All fun. First chance I get, I'm going to dance on the rings of Saturn. All that cool stuff. What's standing between me and that is fear and humility and holiness and righteousness. And it would thrill me to think every one of you would confront sin like a battering ram. This is my enemy and I'm going to kill it. I'm going to destroy sin. And you can overcome it. The resources are there. These Jews were tickled pink that the Messiah finally come. They saw a way. There's a way to overcome this stuff. To overcome sin. To put an end to it. Oh, that we could be an army of soldiers. Not walking about in smug self-righteousness. But to understand this good news has in it not merely the reestablishment of Israel. That's easy. But to overcome the heart of man, to rearrange his priorities, to get him marching in Yah's direction. The good news was declared fully in the early passages of Luke. We find these words on the lip of of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Miriam under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So what do Yahshua and John preach? When it is time to preach the good news, when John hits the streets, when Yahshua hits the streets, what comes out of their mouth? Here's what John says. It's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I underscore, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, um, oh, I'm just catching up with him. I'm not going to find fault with what he says. But I put repent there around... Item number three in my list in the kingdom is item number six. I want to talk about what happens between repent and kingdom. What's in between there? But those are the words that came out of John's mouth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. One chapter later in Matthew, when Yahshua had heard that John was cast into prison, Matthew 4, verse 12, he departed into Galilee. I jump to verse 17. From that time, Yahshua began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same message. 
Now, sometimes these things get jumbled and we're influenced and distorted in our minds by Hollywood movies and we don't read things in chronological order. It's understandable if we don't get our heads wrapped around it. But Yahshua already had disciples at this point. In fact, while John was still active, his, his disciples says, Hey, John, uh, that guy from Galilee, he's got more disciples than us. You know, what's going on here? And Yahshua had not yet taken his message to the street. A few verses after Matthew 4.17, he calls the fishermen to join him in outreach. They already knew him. Now, in the Hollywood movies, they make it sound like they're glassy-eyed. They're trying to do their fishing chores, and they're glassy-eyed. He says, come follow me, and they just sort of follow him in a trance. But they knew him. They were already disciples. They were buddies, local guys, you know. But his message is the same as John's. Repent, there's a kingdom coming. Both of them say the same thing. Both of them start their message with the same word, repent. Same word. This is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. Then Peter said unto them, repent, and be baptized every one of you into the name of Yahshua the Messiah, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to know what happens between the repenting, the remission of sins, and the kingdom. Because that's where we're at now. I've witnessed baptism for many of you. And I know the kingdom's coming, but what about between between baptism and the kingdom? What about that space of time? Remission of sins might be an old, tired subject, but sin is the ultimate enemy. Sin is your deadly enemy. I'm going to give you an example of the battle ahead. This is a battle you can win. You can win the battle against sin. I'll tell you some of the secrets now. And if I am given the grace to talk about men's three biggest weaknesses or women's three biggest weaknesses, I still have to weave into that evangelical equipping of the saints. This is a battle ahead. And it's not a game. In Matthew 5, 28 to 29, Yahshua says, But I say unto you, whosoever looketh on a woman with lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into Gehenna. I underscore, thy whole body could be cast into Gehenna. You could die for this. You, you, could, you can lose your eternal life for this. One of the reasons the Jews reject Yahshua is he taught purity, moral purity, and there are so many rabbis who say it's impossible for a man not to lust. And they say this, reason, this is one of the reasons they reject Yahshua. He says, no, no, you can't get that under control. Yahshua says, yes, you can. Now, there are people smarter than me who have studied this from every angle. I'll give you one of them. I'll just give you one angle to this. Because is he telling you to pluck out your eye? You know. See, if I pluck out one eye... I still have the other eye to commit sin with, don't I? So removing one eye doesn't really solve the problem. What solves the problem is to get control of my insides. Is that the most important thing in my life? It better be. It better be. So he's saying, I'll slide right into Gehenna. (sighs) 
There are people smarter than me who have studied these words of Yahshua's. They said the only way it makes sense is if he's telling you to get control of yourself. The great patriarch Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I may not look upon a maid. He got it under control. And I remember there was a point in my life where I was always looking away when scantily clothed women would come my way. Now I don't, I don't have to do that, but I have to be careful with my eyes because I've got to control them. They'll naturally gravitate to scantily clothed women. I, that's just one example of the battle ahead, a reorientation of our behavior, a reorientation of our thoughts, like Job did, our eyes. Yahshua repeats this lesson in Matthew chapter 18. Twice he talks about this in the same book. You guys know the rules. If something's in there twice, it's serious business. The call to discipline, the call to holiness. I'm going to give you Brother Michael's version of the good news. Many people come forth and package it different ways. It's only natural that I'm going to give you my side of the story. If you love Yahweh, that's the first commandment. If you love Yahweh, That's really your priority. And you seek him and his son in humility. He will save you from your sins and make you holy, sanctified, or set apart. Pick your favorite word. He will make that happen. Let's think about this. When you make up your mind, I don't want to sin anymore. Well, now you're in agreement with him. You don't want to sin Yahweh doesn't want you to sin, then what's what's to stop you from entering sanctification? That's That's a majority rule there. You and him, that's a majority. Let's talk about holiness. There's many definitions of holiness out there. I will not presume to overrule any of them. Please receive this one from me, though. It's based on my experience, observation, and research. Holiness is your personal witness in your conscience that you as a citizen of the kingdom have covenanted with Yahweh to fully engage and defeat sin as your deadly enemy. This is serious business. This is not a gag. It's not a game. It's not a once a week thing. The mere fact that you are yearning for holiness is a tip-off that you're either there now or you're awful close. I remember, I, heard, I love the song that the sister sang before I came up. That speaks to our inner desire, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. As long as you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, you know you're headed in the right direction. I'll put the pointer down. Actually, I'm almost done. But I, uh, when I took an interest in holiness and sanctification, I started calling around on the phone asking mature brethren what they knew about this. And it was amazing how there was a, a center of gravity, a kind of spiritual maturity that they enjoyed. One of them described sanctification in the context of overcoming cigarette smoking. That was his big thing. And I received that. And he says, you know, I couldn't go back to that 
I couldn't go back to those cigarettes now because I'm, I'm free of that. I'm not, that's gone now. He says, I'm over, I'm, I'm here now where that's not part of my life. Some people have described holiness as pure love. Try to put that into words best I can. When Yahweh and his son are abiding inside of you, guiding you, pricking your conscience, convicting you of sin, there will come a point where in your walk where it's very sweet and very precious, and the thought of damaging that will scare the daylights out of you. Instead of now being afraid of his punishments and chastisements, you don't want, to, you don't want that separation. You don't, want to, you don't want that damaged. And the thought of sinning willfully, well, that just scares the daylights out of you. The, the, the language that the apostles used to describe this uh, unforgivable condition, it, it's meant to scare you because you're breaking off a glorious relationship. Yahweh is the coolest thing on the planet. Yahweh is the greatest thing on this planet. And when you see Yahweh work, there's nothing like it. Yeah, we may hoot and holler because our favorite team won the Super Bowl. But it's nothing compared to what Yahweh does. Covenanting with Yahweh to fully engage and defeat sin as your deadly enemy, that's consistent with the ancient principle of covenants, where my friends become his friends. But his friends are my friends, his enemies are my enemies. I'm going to quote from Romans, uh, I think Romans 7. I'm going to make two quotes from the scriptures that are not in the notes just because they seem appropriate now. And then we'll wrap it up. Romans 7, it's the chapter nobody wants to read. This is the chapter where Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, and what I do want to do, I don't do, and... Um, he's whining about the fact that he, he, is, um, he is a sinner. What they don't realize is that he gives you the secret here. I'd like you to take this home with you, even though it's not in the overhead notes. In verse 15 of Romans 7, he goes, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. I repeat, that what I hate, I, that I do. Note verse 16, if I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. If you're not careful, you'll misinterpret that. You'll say, oh, I can sin, because it's not me sinning, it's the sin in me. He actually says that twice. Read on to chapter 6, the previous chapter. In chapter 8, he talks of victory. His explanation in here really clarifies how very much within reach victory is for all of us. Sin just happens to be something inside of you. Um, When I was young, I had a lot of unsightly blackheads on my face. Just something to get rid of. I don't want them there. You know? Um, maybe I ate something that was disagreeable to me. I want that out of me. That's what sin is. You might treat it as a disease if you want. That's fine with me. But once you say, I don't want this sin, I don't want this, you can go to him and start praying and saying, I want this out of here. 
I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it costs. This has got to go. And you make sin your mortal enemy. And you fight it with everything you got. Because it's not you anymore. It's the sin in you. Holiness is Yahweh's will for you. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is a, got a lot there. But I'm cutting it off. For this is the will of Elohim, even your sanctification. There's a lot more there. You're welcome to read it in your le- with your leisure. To set you apart for his purposes is a tremendous miracle. To take you in this natural evil world and set you apart for his purposes. Steps to salvation. Everybody's got their own little list. We have a a lovely chart in the RSB Bible. Repent, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, which is your membership in the kingdom, and its strength for the battle ahead. And the sanctification and holiness process, it begins at a specific moment in time. And you know now, you're on this side of the Jordan. And you find something inside. And one of the brethren I interviewed on this, he described his sanctification this way. He says, you know, sometimes a thought comes to mind that should not be there. And I say, wait a minute, that should not be there. <laughs> and it goes away. He just chases it away. I remember when I finally, something snapped. I, I crossed the line. People told me to expect this. People more mature than me told me to expect this. They also said this happens to people often without even realizing it. But a day came when I realized, hey, the temptations are outside of me rather than inside. That sanctification holiness is a process that begins at a specific point in time. He'll show you which things to work on one at a time. He'll show you which things to work on. Sometimes he'll show you through your spouse what things to work on one thing at a time. But um, and now we're preparing for the resurrection. I have some closing words on sanctification. Here's the other one that I didn't put in the notes. In the book, I think it's in the book of Proverbs. Somebody finds it before I finish. I'll, I'll announce it. But it says, a righteous man may fall seven times, but he still gets up. If you don't know any better, you're going to say, oh, that means I only get seven chances. Okay, if you don't know any better, you'll say that. No, no, no. It says a righteous man will get up a perfect number of times. As long as you're willing to get up, that's hard, it's hard to face Yahweh. So, oh, I blew it again. Oh, it's hard to face him. But at the same time, you guys know what that is when you, you can't go on, you can't go through the day. And you hear him shouting in your ear, my child, you're not going any farther until we sort this out. And that's when you go find a place to pray and whatever, repent, uh, make plans to fix things, make restitution with people, whatever it is. You know what that's like. He'll call you aside. He'll tap you on the shoulder. A righteous man will get up. Yeah, it says seven times. It means a perfect number of times. And as long as you're willing to get up and face him with your sin. I'd like you to recall that when Yahweh entered the garden... We believe that was Yahshua with Yahweh's name on him. But when he came into the garden and Adam and Eve had already sinned, you notice that Adam and Eve hid. They hid. (laughs) That's what he doesn't want. He would rather you go to him and say, I was wrong. You've got to hate sin. You've got to oppose sin. You've got to fight sin. It's a lifetime enterprise. 
Try things. Strategize. Re reorder your priorities. Pray and watch. And be willing to let go of stumbling blocks. What am I, overtime? Oh, oh, Proverbs 24, 16. Thank you. I couldn't read that uh, from here. Well, for the record, for the recording, we'll look there at Proverbs 24, 16. Thank you so much, friends. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we had like a, a row of Bible experts up front to help uh, in situations like this? Proverbs 24, 16. For a just man falleth seven times and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. A just man will always get back up. Yahweh would much rather you get back up than wallow in, in pity or, or self-flagellation. But be willing to let go of stumbling blocks. Let me go back. I'm going to show you a little secret here. I kept back from you something. I quoted two or three times the passage of Abraham uh, um, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sandwiches upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Here's what I kept back from you. Because thou hast obeyed my voice, it's the verse just before all this. And Yahweh said to him, By myself I have sworn, saith Yahweh, because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. One of the key elements in your arsenal in seeking sanctification is to identify stumbling blocks, and some of them will be blessings. And your brain's going to play tricks on you. You're going to say, well, this is a blessing, right? He wouldn't want me to give up a blessing. But you know, all those sacrifices they brought to the temple were blessings to, these were animals, these were valuable animals. And they sacrificed them to Yahweh, willingly. Sometimes the numbers were staggering. Um, often, the stumbling block in your life will be something that means a lot to you. All right? And uh, this is not... <laughs> This is not supposed to be some game where you play, play games with Elohim. I'll give you an example. In, a, in the Catholic tradition, they have a thing called Lent. All right? In the springtime, they give up something for 40 days. And in the schoolyards of Chicago, there was a joke going around. Well, what are you going to give up for Lent? Because you always had to like, give up something for Lent. And in the schoolyards of the Chicago, we said, well, we'll give up homework. You know, well, you're not giving up anything if you give up homework. You know, that's, homework is a nuisance, you know. Just as David paid for the threshing floor of Arana, he already won that town through military conquest, but he paid for the threshing floor of Arana. He said, I've got to give a sacrifice that cost me something. Yeah. Abraham had to give, like, the ultimate sacrifice. And I've talked to parents. They'd rather they be sick than their children be sick. They'd rather they be hurt than their children be hurt. Abraham would have loved to have died instead of his son, but he was told to sacrifice his son. What about you? What might you have to let go of to get rid of sin? And people will play games with your mind. They'll say, oh, your faith must be really weak. You can't watch that movie you, you, can't, you can't sing that song. You, oh, your faith must be weak. You hear this kind of talk. And to that I say, yes, I plead guilty as charged. 
Because my relationship with my Father in Heaven is far more valuable than that movie or that song or you know whatever it is, that thing. If I give the grace to talk about the three greatest weaknesses of men and women, it's going to be called East Side, West Side. Okay, three sins each. We'll have to talk to the elders about that. But when we talk about sin, we must talk about overcoming sin. This is within reach. It's you and Yahweh all the way. It's the greatest adventure on this earth. It's far more exciting than the World Series or any of these other things. You've been very attentive and patient with these uh, remarks, and I thank you so much. Yahweh be with you. Yahweh sanctify you.